Hey, Jed, good to see you. Hey, Andy, how you doing? How's your summer been? Mine's been good. I'll tell you about it. Let's start with you. How, what, have, what have you been up to since we were last together? It's been a minute. Well, I haven't, had much, kids say. Well, I haven't had much summer in terms of vacation. I'm saving things up. It's my wife's on my 25th, and we're walking the Camino in Spain in the second half of September and October. So I basically am working straight through the summer. But most of the other time that I've had has been around my son and helping him with his college applications and trying to get in front of a college coach for his soccer team. Also trying to help a lot of his teammates who are similarly in the recruiting process. I know we want to keep it light and talk about the fun of summer, right? But this soccer recruiting and, and D3 sports and the gentrification of college athletics is something I'm experiencing up close and, and personal right now. But I guess the positive thing is a lot of Quentin's soccer friends several of whom are first generation are actually going to end up going to good schools in the end. And so we feel terrific about that. Yeah, that's great. And they, and they all end up like, you know, go, going to good schools. I think athletics can end up taking on like an outsized uh, importance. We should maybe at some point do a uh, uh, Steve Messler and I did one with Michael Horn, a podcast. We talked about that. We can put that in the show notes. Um, and, and we were talking about coming back with our daughters, all of us have, you know, and, and Steve's daughter's younger. My daughters have both played competitive sports and just, like it's it's it it's a lot for sure. Um, maybe we could do something on that. But tell me about the L so you're gonna walk the way. Where are you gonna start and and how far are you gonna go? So we're gonna start in Saint John in France and we'll go across the uh, the French um, uh, French Pyrenees there and do the entire uh, distance. So we did a third of it eight years ago when I was on sabbatical and we and our and our little ones, our our ten and our twelve year old were with us at the time. But when we got to the end, Amy and I said, hey, let's come back for our 25th and do the entire thing. So it's been this thing that's been an anchor there for a long time. We really have a good time. I don't know if you've done any part of the Camino or know very much about it, but it's getting to be super popular. It's overrun with tourists, but it's also quite a cool experience. And we're really looking forward to it. Yeah, we have friends who have done it. I, I mean, a lot of what I know about honestly comes from that fantastic uh, Emilio Estevez, Martin yeah, Sheen film. Um but uh, yeah, I know I know a little bit, and um, I had a little a, a similar experience. Um, I would say uh, sort of a far more um, perhaps more secular experience. We were in uh, Rome. We were riding our bikes um, on the Apian mm. Way, and I didn't realize you can actually just sort of self deploy and ride the whole thing if you want um, with a you know mountain bike, uh, you know suspended kind of bike. And so now I'm like trying to figure out how far we could take it and ride, you know, ride into Rome. Um, and so that's now, that's now becoming, I have another Europe ride I want to do. And now that's on, that's on the list. So was that the first time for the family in Rome? It was the first time as a family for us to be in Italy together. Yes. We went to, we were in Rome, Florence and Tuscany. So, you know, some history, uh, a lot of food and wine and, and some good time outside to some good time together. We're at a similar, you know, point. My kids are 17. So we're, you know, trying to remind them that their parents are okay. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll come back one day. Last summer, we were trying to pitch an idea for a trip together as a family. And I pitched all these different things. Let's go camping. Let's go to Canada. Let's go. And everyone was like, why don't you and mom get some good quality time together? And then I pitched Rome <laughs> and they're like, oh, let's do a family vacation. Right. So we Yeah. I mean, and Rome's great. It's a fun city. You can both have fun. There's, I mean, the learning opportunities there, you could, you know, you could you could spend a decade there and 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 not you know not get through so much. Um, 
Uh, so it's it's a it's a cool place. I was intrigued. Like we went, we spent a bunch of time in Alaska last summer, which was amazing. Um, and saw just a terrific education person up there, Jamie Reese. He's a high school teacher in Seattle. He used to teach in Baltimore. Um, fantastic. He was a uh, college athlete, played soccer for Harvard, and um, just one of those really interesting people in our in our sector. And um, spent some time with him up around Fairbanks. It was a great trip. And I wasn't sure that the kids like really love it or was it like nice? They're glad to be home. And interestingly, like when we, you know, we're starting to work on the Italy trip. One of my daughters is like, I wish we could just like go back to Alaska and be outside yeah. in Alaska again. I was kind of like, okay, that's like not this summer, but that's cool. We will definitely, you know, I've been lucky enough to be up there uh, a few times and uh, we will definitely do that again. Yeah. So we have, we have kindred spirits in all sorts of ways. We did a trip in, in Alaska and that is the kid's favorite by far. They would go back to Alaska in a heartbeat. Yeah. It's an, it's an amazing place. It opens, it, you know, like Rome opens your, uh, and I think for my kids, like, you know, that was, they, they, they'd seen old stuff, but they hadn't seen like, they'd seen, like, I mean, they've been, you know, like they've been nice and they've seen Viking stuff, things like that. But like, I think that kind of blew their minds. Um, uh, and I think Alaska blows your mind sort of geographically, just how big country can actually be. Um, yeah. And just absolutely. how remote and how you can just get out in the bush and, and be gone. Um, so I think you need things like that when you're young. It kind of changes your, it, 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 it opens your horizons. Well, what my girls, I'll tell you the truth, what they really wanted this summer, because, you know, they're 17, they thought this was going to be sort of hot girl summer. And in fact, what we basically <laughs> did, in addition to dragging to Italy, we dragged them to a lot of concerts. And so, like, I, I, I'm telling them what they got was lot. They got lot girl summer. Um, <laughs> so they saw um, uh, one of my daughters. and I saw a great Neil Young show. I don't know if you and I talked about that. It was no. a, a fantastic Neil Young show at the Greek right, wow. at, the beginning, right at the beginning of summer. And then um, uh, they saw um, Dead and Company. And oh, good. Yeah, which was their first time in that wow. scene. So that was interesting. And Julie and I caught Tedeschi Trucks. And actually, just last night, we're filming. We're doing this on a on a. Um, uh, we're, we're doing this on a Thursday and it'll go up in a day or two. We saw um, Bill Kreutzmann's doing a tour with his band, just a two, a two show tour. They're calling it peer to peer. So he's playing a, the pier in Baltimore and a pier up in New York. And they were exceptional. He's got a, just a really good configuration. Um, uh, this woman, Kamika Moore came by and was uh, set in on vocals and she was amazing. He's got this new guy, Danny Donato's sort of a real, real creative player. So, that was super fun. Uh, and so that, that it's been more, it's been more lot girl summer than anything else. Well, the amazing thing is you've got your kids willing to go to concerts with you. That's, that's a bridge I've never gotten over and I don't think I ever will, but, uh, you I know, will. okay. We can, we can make this whole episode. We can name check interesting people. <laughs> a few years ago, Paul Herdman used to tell me, you know, from Rodell in Delaware and formerly new America schools and, um, you know, came up an hour bound. Paul's just a terrific person in the sector, lives in Delaware. And Paul used to tell me about going to concerts with his daughter. And I was like, so sort of jealous. And I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, like not bad jealousy, but just, oh my gosh, that sounds so great. Um, and I was like, I don't know if that'll ever. And then like, it just sort of started happening. And it's been like, it's been cool. We're gonna, we're gonna go get, catch some Bruce shows hopefully this fall. Um, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been interesting, but just sort of, it just sort of happened. And it was something I watched other people do. And I was like, how do you make that happen? And I, I don't think you can, it just has to sort of happen organically. Well, maybe my kids want to stay separate from me on recreational time because of things related to charter school obsession. For example, when we were in Alaska, we, I found out that there is a charter school in a place called North Pole. It's called yeah, yeah. North Pole Charter School. And so we're driving into North Pole and the kids, where do they want to go? Santa's workshop. 
And I was like, shut up. We're going to the charter school first, right? Yeah. So they wanted to go in a different direction there as far as charter schools go. And I think their tastes in music have stayed similarly. We were going to visit that COVID got in the way. <laughs> Laura Marcus, who um, ran the Arete Project, now runs Tidelines, which is a really cool school in uh, Gustavus, Alaska for uh, college students. And she kind of, there's a school out your way called Deep Springs. And, and she wanted to start a, a, an all-female version. I ended up doing this co-ed thing in Alaska. Um, uh, just a, another, so we're going to keep name checking. She's a really interesting person in the sector, kind of does things her own way, actually. Just just uh, just had a baby. She's, she's just fantastic as an educator. And um, we I was making, my kids are like, we're in Glacier Bay. And like at the Park Services, sort of incredible lodge up there on Bartlett Cove. And we're mm -hmm. hanging out and dad wants to make us go to a school. And so I, I, <laughs> we're looking at whales and they're like, yeah, we're going to go to a school. They, so they, 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 uh, they get that. Well, I did uh, enjoy getting a couple of uh, texts from you uh, while you were in Rome. Thank you for allowing, you know, your vacation to be interrupted. But I, there were a se several occasions, you know, over the last month or so, because it's been a while since we've done a recording where Virginia stuff has come up that I've wanted to, Talk yeah, we should about. at some point. We should. This isn't just in. Who wants to listen? Who wants to listen to a podcast? Jen and I are going to talk about our vacations <laughs> and our families, and then and get weepy about being empty nesters. That'll be that'll be great for the ratings. Um, yes, yeah, so we should pivot. We can talk about that before we do that. I do want to. Um, our next. So we've sort of Good, have, yeah. have been um, bullshitting a little bit, but um, our next, and we'll get into Virginia. That's just more serious. But our next. Um, podcast uh at the end of the month we have two really amazing guests it went well with mackie as one guest so we figured why not do two uh i'm not going to say who they are but i think it's going to be a really fantastic discussion about sort of education politics advocacy um uh parent organizing and empowerment and it, I, i'm just super excited about it so that one i would say tune in but obviously it's a podcast so you can listen whenever you want but that'll be that'll be the next one and I, i'm just Super looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well. And how this work is done authentically. There's times when you see folks brought into advocacy efforts and it feels real. And there are others that it just doesn't. And I think the two people that we're going to have on in a couple of weeks, you know, are really among those people that specialize in the authentic voice, right? Two, yeah, two. And, and we'll just, I mean, we've been name checking people. We'll just name that they're two, two mystery guests who you will, <laughs> uh, you, you will find out about soon. Hey, this reminds me one more thing before we get to Virginia. Yeah. Do you know Steve Reese, Schoolwise Press, that he does school data journal? Yeah, yeah, I know him. He's another one of these people who I was thinking, I saw Steve recently, I was thinking about him. You know, he came up in like Palo Alto and he, yeah. like, if you go to like that, they did that big Bill Graham, the music producer, Bill, Bill Graham, not, not yep. Billy Graham, the em, em, evangelist, yeah, sure. the other, the other Billy Graham, the music producer. Um, And like Steve's pictures were in that exhibit. He's got like his, his work was used in like the Grateful Dead movie. And he's got all these no pictures. He, he gave me some pictures once and they're of like Jerry Garcia, like, you know, in the in in like Palo Alto at these little places in the early '60s, <laughs> and, and one day he sent me a Warlocks poster. He's like one of the he's another one of these people who like you think you sort of know like you know a little bit, and then like underneath there's like all this other stuff, you know. <laughs> and I'm just I was thinking about that the other day. It's like you know Shivam Shah, like who everybody thinks of, you know, education education executive, but like she also owns a tequila company, which is not probably what you would necessarily or you know becca bracy's like you know really serious in the mountains mountain biker and climber like we get these people who are um uh it's just interesting and and we maybe one day we could we could do like some sort of 
thing on that because you you they're the kind of people who surprise you. You learn a couple of things about them, and you can't predict the other ones because there's all this stuff out of left field. I'll leave it to Rothram to get me to to break one of my solemn vows because one has been never to discuss anything that I've done relative to the Grateful Dead in a professional setting. <laughs> believe me what happened at grateful dead shows needs to stay in grateful dead shows <laughs> but you know i love the tour of all the people and and the stuff that you uh that you, that you saw this summer um and this Did you want, okay well now i'm gonna make you break your vow did you go to the, the shows out there some shows out there this summer no i didn't go this year and i i did have a very close friend that was going to boulder and and uh for one of the last shows with his daughter um and really wanted me to be there and I just could not make it happen with other family stuff that I had going on, but um, scheduling's tough. Know. That that does uh, that does happen. I'm a little more porous on that rule. I remember I took a couple of people from my team. We were when I'm out in California. It's unfortunately closed, but Phil Lush had that great club oh, yeah. over in Marin. Yeah. It was just like just such a delightful place to spend time. And I would I would drag them over there. I remember I took a couple of them over there one time. Phil was playing, and with with Phil Lush of France, like Stu Allen, and like some really Amazing. good players. And yeah, and it was like. Yeah, you do have to kind of have the rule. Hey, you do whatever you do whatever you want, and like, <laughs> <laughs> and it will stay here. All right. Well, let's let's pivot to Virginia. I because I, um, I do. I mean, the, the the way I've been thinking about this is, we've got a country that is has about fifty hot steaming messes from a state policy standpoint. It just seems like, and they're all crazy for their own unique ways, but they are crazy at a level of craziness that is pretty unprecedented. And then you see Rick Hess write an article that quotes you and, and you know, really dives deep into Virginia adopting some state content standards that seem genuinely like really great ones. And so something substantive was able to get done in Virginia. And then I've done a few other I just continue to read articles. There are some that come up that just stress the culture wars and all that stuff. But there's also this you know, reasonability that's there. Some of the appointments to the state board, not just yourself, but Mache and, and, and others, suggest that maybe there's something that we should be learning from in, in Virginia. So I wonder if, if you wouldn't mind just like uh, setting the stage for us. Can you just- Sure, and we'll put that in the show notes. It was actually an interview. Rick pulled, Rick pulled a little bit of like a Tom Sawyer move. Um, so it was actually an interview. So I did, I, I did all the work, but he gets the byline. And, you know, <laughs> but like Rick is, of course, prolific. Like since then, he's probably written like two books on Virginia since that interview. Yeah. So that was back yeah. in like April. Um, so yeah, but that we'll put that in the show notes. Um, look, I don't know how to set the stage. I guess the big thing I would say about Virginia, and, and this has always been true, I think, just in public life and politics and so forth. Like there's always like the narrative that people and, and these days, whatever people are saying on Twitter or X or whatever the hell we're calling it now, you know, and, and in social media and even in some cases like in, in the regular legacy media. And then there's what's actually happening and what's actually going on. And those two things are often like there's some variance. I think what's really pronounced now is in some cases just how substantial the variance is. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's unique at all to Virginia. I think you see that, um, you know, around the country. And again, you always have. I just think it's a little bit more intense now. So I don't want to say like everything in Virginia is going swimmingly. We have intense partisanship. It's going to heat up. There's an election coming and all that. But like the point of Rick's uh, the interview was like we did get something done on these standards. Everybody who reads them thinks they're pretty good. And I think yeah. it shows just like you can get things done. And, and the thing about it, I don't think any one person deserves 
um, credit for it. It was a bunch of people working together and essentially just putting the interests of the of the Commonwealth and and the and the kids of the Commonwealth ahead of like all the temporal, you know, expediency. So as far as additional context, I always go back to the election in 21 and it was seen as really a swing election where education proved to be the difference maker. And uh, and the and the McAuliffe had um, Randy Weingarten come at the last second. And the thought was that maybe Weingarten would help. And the perception of at least pundits in the end was that that was exactly the wrong thing to do. Governor talked about uh, that we shouldn't we shouldn't be entrusting parents with I don't remember exactly what the quote was, but a, a very radioactive just um, uh, comment about not trusting parents to operate our school districts or something like that. And Youngkin wins. And um, and when he wins, he makes his when he makes his, you know, celebratory speech that first night, the word charter was the 60th word he uttered. He, we were going to get a charter school law done in, in, in Virginia. Only now, you, ca- only you counted that. I like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, you it's, probably it's tell me how many, how many syllables in but it. What I, what I liked about it was though, <laughs> that, you know, it signaled, I think seriousness. I was yeah, hoping. Yeah. That, and I think there was a very serious effort that was made. Ultimately a charter school law was not able to get across the, the, the finish line. This lab school concept was, um, and, and I think a lot of drama and conflict happened in those first early months and then people stopped paying attention as much again. And I think it was after, you know, that happened where perhaps some of, you know, these other substantive progress, uh, examples of progress were able to happen. Yeah. Okay. So a lot there. I mean, let, let's start with like the political analysis. Education was obviously a factor in the race. So was voters turned out in certain parts of the state who hadn't, hadn't turned out and so forth. Um, I think one way you can see, if you look at places like Loudoun County or Fairfax County, which stayed closed for a long time, were sort of ground zero for some of the culture war stuff and, and still are, you yeah. saw a shift. You saw you saw a distinct move. Now, the, in terms of the political analysis, the thing, and I don't know if you and I have talked about it in this podcast, I've talked about it in some others, like it's easy to overstate. People tend to look at the Biden election in 2020 and then the Youngkin election in 2021 and are like, oh my gosh, look at this enormous, you know, 10 point right. kind of swing. I think the Biden election, Virginia is a state with a lot of military, a lot of civil servants, um, and a lot of people take government seriously. And so Biden performed well, and you had a lot of Republicans who voted uh, Democratic at the national level in that election because of it, Donald Trump was on the ballot, right? Yep. And Youngkin did a masterful job keeping Donald Trump out of the race in, uh, in, in, in 2021. And so I think the swing you have to look at is the swing from 2017, the previous gubernatorial election wow. um, where Ralph Northam, the Democrat, won to 2021. And what you do see there is Youngkin made inroads, again, you know, substantial ones across the board. So I, I don't mean to like take anything away. He 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 won the election, a state that a lot of people thought was out of reach for Republicans. And he um, did it by putting together a pretty interesting coalition. Um, uh, much of the his coalition was actually much more diverse, I think, than people realize. Um, uh, and, and so I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from all that, but it was not this 10 point swing. The national election, the state election are different. You got to look at 2017 and there you do see movement. And again, education, I think, was a big part of it. And to your question, like, look, yeah, Randy coming in, it was like a finger in the eye to people who and and, and the thing you, you yeah. can't forget about this 
is lots of people were talking in the fall of 2021, like the school closure thing was in the past. Why did anybody care? Kids have been back in school since late that spring and all that. First of all, people were still upset about it. Second, a lot of people are still experiencing it. If you have a kid, yeah. for example, in special ed, and there'd been, you know, there continues to be, um, you know, one of our, one of the school districts in the state is, is, is in a compliance agreement now uh, around special ed services. Um, there's a lot of, you know, other issues happening in other, other divisions. Um, it, it's a big issue. And so people were still like, this was always talked about in the past tense. It was present tense for a mm. lot of Virginians. Mm. And, uh, McCulloch just did not give voice to that. And again, if anything, it was like a stick in the eye, some of this yep. stuff. And, and, and there was a price, there was a price to be paid for that. Now, and look on the charters and choice. Yeah. Look, Virginia is a tough state on charters. And I would ask you, like, I think it's a fascinating, you always, I run into people and they talk about these states that still don't have charter laws or have really weak ones. And I would characterize Virginia's as very weak. And you hear like, Oh, well, if people there just, you know, had a little more ganas, a little more hustle, like, you know, worked a little harder. And, and and they argue that. And that's that's certainly one line of argument. But I guess another one you have to ask yourself is maybe the places that don't have charter school laws that are at all or strong don't have them for a reason, because like the politics there are really brutal. And the governor cannot just wave a magic wand and 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 create charter schools uh, and create more school choice. You have to get through the legislature. And this is always in the media, like oh, it's a left-right thing. It's not. Um, it's it, the politics are much more subtle and complicated, and so it's really hard. And so we're doing lab schools, which are these university-affiliated um, autonomous schools. There's some really cool proposals in the pipeline. Uh, I'm excited about that. Um, Mache Ashton was just appointed to the Board of Education of Virginia, and yeah, you know, so she obviously like she's forgotten more yeah. about charter schools than, than most of us know. <laughs> um, you know, so it, like we're we're making steps in that direction, but it is it is it is slow going, and it's going to continue to be slow going just because the politics and in Virginia there just are not robust parent groups organizing parents right now. The the, the politics yeah. do sort of break down very much establishment uh, driven on this stuff. And until that changes, I don't see the the choice uh, situation changing, you know, dramatically. And I wish I wish it would because I want to see parents in this Commonwealth have more options and choices and more customization for their kids. Well, I think a lot of this comes down to in these states that have weak laws or no laws whatsoever. There is just a political calculus that needs to be made on the rural Republican side. Are we really going to exert pressure on these folks or not? Is it going to come from within the Republican Party or not? Or from within a political apparatus that is deeply embedded or working, you know, often with Republicans? In Texas, you know, the advocates there um, saw opposition from rural Republicans on a number of things. Everybody thought that they were going to be supporters of charters. And when we got them to vote in the legislature, 25 of them voted with the opposition. Then the political apparatus was put to work on rural Republicans in Texas and they flipped back and we were able to get things passed. In Iowa, governor had the same thing. She tried to get, you know, a, 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 an aggressive charter school thing done right away. Couldn't get it done raised her own money, got her own pack and said, I'm specifically going to be using this resources to hold accountable my own Republicans who didn't support this thing. She defeated a couple and the next year she got the law passed. It's, it's really a question of are people, you know, Republicans usually in these, in these kinds of contexts uh, willing to do that kind of thing. So I'm really fascinated to see 
what's going to happen with Youngkin now. I think we were, well, we, whatever, I'm not Republicans, but, but from a charter perspective. Yeah, right? you, you, and me, you, you, and, you and me both, but unfortunately, they're more vocal on choice these days. So, but, but you know, uh, the Republicans were one vote from having control of the Senate as well, which people think would have been enough difference for a, a charter school bill to get passed. So now the question was, how are they going to get control of the, of the Senate? Now there was a special election that happened, I don't, you know, probably January or February, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was previously held by a Republican Senator and that actually flipped back Democratic. Yes, I, I think people think that that might have flipped back because of bad Republican positioning or positioning that is at odds with voters on a, on abortion. I'm not sure of that. I'd love to see what your thoughts are. Abortion, but right now we're like abortion. I think. Look, I'm not an expert on that race, but I will say two things. One, the Democratic candidate had a very attractive profile. Ooh. Um, it was just a just a terrific candidate. Um, and then the abortion thing. Yeah, I mean, we saw and we just saw again in in Ohio, um, what last week. You know, the abortion thing, I mean, I know I, I had thought that issue was more baked into the way people voted than it clearly is. And that like that is an albatross on the Republicans. And it's unclear what they uh, do about it. It's kind of an interesting watching them run to the right in some ways on it. You know, DeSantis, that bill he signed and so forth. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do, but it's 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 become clear that the the school of thought that that Roe was lousy constitutional law, but a good rough approximation of where the country is, that school of thought seems to be correct. Like people, mm -hmm. you know, you know, people, uh, uh, they they were pretty comfortable with uh, restrictions uh, late term. They did not want restrictions in the first trimester. And Dobbs upended that in a way that's just causing chaos for the Republicans. And I, I don't know that they have a theory of the case for how they're going to sort of get through that. And per your point, the elections in Virginia, that'll be a major issue uh, this fall. And I asked, you ask five smart people about politics in Virginia, what's going to happen in the elections in the fall, and you're going to get five answers. Um, yeah. Status quo seems to be something a lot of people think, so who knows? Um, I don't feel like I have a good enough grasp on it to, to prognosticate, but I do think you'll see the choice, the the abortion choice issue will be a big issue, and it is an interesting thing. You can't miss the juxtaposition of the two parties on abortion <laughs> and yeah, choice there and school choice. It is it is almost like reversed in a very peculiar way. Yeah, the the idea that Dems are out of step with the swing voters on education issues, and Republicans are out of step with. Uh, the swing voters on on abortion issues and yeah. and how does this how does this play out? It's going to be absolutely fascinating. Well, more than that though, Jed, right? Like you've got, and I'll probably get in trouble for like, but the reality is, like in this country, if you have means, Dobbs, you're going to be able to travel and so forth. Like yeah. the people who are really now in a bad situation with with Dobbs are like, if you live in like rural Texas, you don't make a lot of money, you can't take time off from work, you can't travel because you're surrounded by states that have restrictions. You know that that's where you start to it. And so, like when you look at the data on who's going to be affected by this and the estimates and so forth, it's it's poor women disproportionately, and likewise on school choice. Like it's if you if you're affluent, you can work around the dysfunction of the system and you can figure out you know people figure out workarounds where they live or they send their kids to private school. Um, and, and so the, or even in a lot of these, um, cities you can find there's like, there are paths, there's clusters of schools and so forth. And if you're affluent, you can figure out how to, how to take advantage of that. Um, if you're poor, you're, 
you know, at the whim of, of, of fortune. And so school choice becomes like a, just an enormous issue for you. And so that juxtaposition also, I just feel like people have to, people have to, people have to sit with this and, and both parties are both are, are in weird place. Like the, in terms of like their affinity for helping the poor on a particular issue. It's a very, the, the, those two issues together are very uh, strange. Rick Hess could probably write a book about it this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that in terms of, you know, not being a hot steaming mess, I'm not sure what exactly, you know, is making the ecosystem <clears throat> viable in, in Virginia, but we just see in so many other states where either the culture wars are just completely and utterly out of control or there are some other things. I, I think well, I don't know. I mean, I hear that, but then I'm like, okay, like Tennessee obviously had tons of education culture war stuff. But they still like got a new finance plan through that was really pretty good, um, you know, uh, and, and that happened, you know, uh, with 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 Bill Lee and with all the stuff that was yeah. rolling around culture wise. I mean, maybe Arkansas will put this to the test because they seem to be leaning in on some of the culture war stuff. And they their last legislative session, they passed an ambitious basket of um, uh, education reforms. So maybe they'll put this to the test. Can you, you know, can you sort of walk and chew gum? Um but I don't know that every the culture war stuff in every state has sort of yeah ground. It's just you know I think I think uh, I think it's it's different in different in, in different states. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see not not just specifically on the culture war stuff, but when some of these breakthroughs have happened, and I don't think people have necessarily thought them through all in advance very well, and they don't have the system set up on the other side to take care of these things. A yeah. story that is going to be bigger and bigger is that those that went to universal vouchers have huge challenges with the administration of their programs. All of the states that estimated how many parents would make use of a universal voucher, way underestimated. So Iowa, they have, I don't remember what it is. They have like more than twice as many people who have actually sought the charter. Now that's gonna have a budgetary challenge for the state for one thing, but the other thing is just administratively, yeah. they don't know how to take care of this. Same thing in Arizona, huge numbers, right? And so they're they're sending out vouchers to programs. And I'm not saying, oh, stop vouchers for this reason. I'm just, I'm just saying that when you have these kinds of major, major breakthroughs that happen, if you really, really care about vouchers, you would think that you also are thinking through how are we gonna make sure that the administration happens as effectively as possible in the early going, so we don't lose it because of scandal or some other, you know, right. issue. And it, I don't, we it don't have that existential crisis though. It's amazing, like how much people want out, and how yeah. and these yeah. and like this should be. If you are a public school supporter, and I am a public school supporter, that's why I do a lot of what I do. Like this is a crisis, and instead, it's just all this bullshit about yeah. you know that we're that we're hearing about you know what's going on and so forth and like this if if you believe in public education as sort of a broadly supported you know cross class institution this is like a really perilous moment and you don't everybody's like whistling past the graveyard and like you to speak of so Virginia on that one I would not say things are going swimmingly because like every time the governor points out that like our Nate you know scores plummeted because of pandemic policies, biggest drops in the nation, that we have these huge achievement gaps. Every time we get a fight over that, is it really yeah. that bad or no? You know, he, he's ginning up a crisis and all this. And it's it's insane. You look at the data and you're like, this is an enormous problem for kids. 
But every time it's a big fight in the media, well, you know, who knows and get these stories. Well, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, you know, none of their kids are affected. Right. Yeah. Um, and like that. Is, so that part is not going swimmingly, let me tell you. And I feel like we need like where are the groups to like help reset some of that conversation? I mean, the conversation we're basically having in Virginia is a conversation that 15 years ago, the education trust would have been at the vanguard of. Like we're talking about yeah. achievement gaps. We're talking about data. Yep. We're talking yep. about how do we redo our accreditation system of schools so we can start to actually have, we don't have really have an accountability system in Virginia. So we can start to, to actually have an accountability system. I mean, that is the conversation. And yet the groups, they are nowhere, none of these, none of the groups. And I'm not just, I'm not, this is not like a critique of, of the Ed Trust in particular, just none of the groups and the institutions that used to be there anywhere to be found. And Mom, Moms for Liberty driving right, are filling that vacuum. And I think that's, and, and one thing I just want to like come back to before we, we can talk about Moms for Liberty, because people always seem to like to listen to us talk about them, um, <laughs> is you talk about rural charter schools. My kingdom for people just to organize more information about them, take people to them, because it is still, I talk to people all the time, it is an article of faith. You cannot have charter schools in rural communities. And you try to talk to them about like the exciting stuff happening in places like Idaho and so forth. And it's just... Like there, there is just a lack of awareness and that that complicates the already complicated rural politics that you you gave voice to earlier. One of the things that we way underappreciate about rural charter schools is that you need to have different kinds of models to be able to go into those places. And often those models require a different regulatory framework. I would say that one of the str strengths of the California charter school law is that we've always had this misnamed but from a policy perspective, important status of non-classroom-based charter schools. Non-classroom-based charter schools serve kids, uh, it, provide less than 80% of their instruction in a classroom setting. So a lot of these schools, the kids go to school four days a week, three days a week, two days a week. There are a lot of classrooms, but they're called non-classroom. But a lot of them end up having um, these resource centers that serve a relatively small number of kids hundreds kids here, 70 kids over there, 75 kids over here, but they are all in a network and they're all supported with each other. And what happens in rural settings, when you talk about a non-classroom-based school coming and setting up a resource center that might serve 60 kids, you're not going to kill off the entire school district. Right. And so there's a receptiveness there. Well, even with, the, even with the models where kids do have to drive, I'm struck how far, and you see this in urban areas, like you'll talk to kids and they're like, oh yeah, I'd have to take the train here and I'm on it for, you know, an hour, 15, hour and a half. Their parents though, like, and I think this is where people in the system think like a system and they're like, oh, no one would want to do that. It's like, no, if things aren't working well for your kid, you will put them on a bus for an hour. Yeah. You will do anything you can to get your kid into a better situation, whether that's because they're having issues at the school, you know, socially, whether that's because they're, you know, they're not being challenged. The school's not working for them. They're just not learning anything, whatever it is. Um, parents will like do a lot. And if you care about public schools, you should be thinking about, okay, how do we meet those parents where they are instead of like asking them to, to take on these heroic, you know, you know, journeys, if you will, um, for their kids every day or five days a week. And I think that this, this non-classroom based concept, which I think, you know, allows parents to do things without the same degree of driving and heroism um, is missing in most of the country. And so I'm tipping a hand here. I've really worked within the non-classroom based community in California, 
will someone please write something saying we need something that like this across the whole country? It's amazing. I talked to Oklahoma. They like they really want this right now. They don't have it. Texas is just getting it. Louisiana hasn't have it, had it. A lot of other places don't have it. And then they have these problems with rural schools. I really think this is a foundational thing. If we got yeah. it into the landscape, if we got it into Virginia, I think it would change the discussion in rural stand settings. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, and maybe there is like that's. I mean, we you know we can we can pretend we can play assignment editors. We can pretend we we we're not. We can we play one on TV. Um, there like because that would be a great and just looking at rural charters in general. And I mean, there's just yeah. like a lot of myth busting that can be um, uh, that can be done there. But you want to talk about Monster Liberty? I read two articles since I last saw you. Um, Robert Pond like that they you know they met up there in Philadelphia and Robert Pondicio and all the presidential camps real cattle call. Yeah, a lot of attention. A great article. Thank you for sending that to me. I like. I that. thought it was interesting. There was there's two big two big things that I saw. I'm sure there was lots of other stuff written about it, but the two that I saw that came across my desk were Pondicio's piece, which was certainly friendly, um, uh, friendly friendly to them. Um, yeah. And then there was uh, a Daily Beast piece. We can put both these in the show notes. That was decidedly less friendly, and. I thought they were kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Robert's piece, we could talk about his comparison with, with TFA was interesting. I think that's what yeah. I liked that part. That's worth discussing. But I think he was, you know, exceptionally friendly to them. The Daily Beast was exceptionally harsh. And I think a lot of people might think, wow, the truth probably lies like somewhere in between. I'm not saying Robert was was untruthful. I just think his take was his take was very was was rosier and, and, and more favorable than mine would be. Um, uh, and I just thought it was interesting and it sort of, it's sort of, um, you know, we got some feedback last time we talked about Monster Liberty, you know, some people were like, thanks for being nuanced, but some people were like, oh my God, how can you like say anything, you know, anything at all good about them? Um, and it, it struck me, that's kind of like the times we're in, right? Like there's just not that sort of, you know, that sort of gray is, is, is really hard, uh, is really hard to get at. Well, I thought the article was interesting for a lot of reasons, but I particularly focused in on the conflict between the National Parents Union and Moms for Liberty, and they're supposedly on opposite sides, and they're talking trash about each other and all of that. Okay, great. But if you look at the data that they're getting through their surveying, they are finding that parents and general vote and voters are just completely and utterly fed up with public education. It's going back to the point that you just made earlier about the level of crisis that we have. NPU, I know they have some new um, uh, data coming out. It may have come out this week, I'm not sure. Um, talking about parents recognizing, I don't remember the exact numbers, it's strikingly high in the high 60s or something like that, believing that there is a crisis in public education. And then interestingly on the NPU side, they also identified improving public education as the second imp most important issue to voters, um, which is something we just don't see very often. So they, they're coming at it from very different standpoints. Um, and there may be aspects of what both of them are doing that we don't like, but they're both tapping into something that feels very foundational and, and, and very true. Yeah, I think so. And, and maybe it's so hot. And a lot of that, I watched a lot of that back and forth. And it's like, that just strikes me that that's a lot of that's adult politics. I have trouble seeing the through line to, um uh to kids uh just in the whole back and forth with both yeah of them. but like um you know there's more agreement out there on a lot of this stuff and in some ways maybe that makes the debate hotter right i mean you and i talked about this like 
Moms for Liberty, their position, like, you know, schools shouldn't be concealing transitions of kids from their parents. Like, that's like a very popular position in this country, like 80 percent. And, and, and I think the Democrats are starting to realize that they're way over their skis on that one. Um, but so is treat kids, treat every kid with respect and dignity and try to have inclusion and, and tolerance. That's where people are. There's a there's a hardcore group that's not there, but they're small, thankfully. Um, uh, we've made a lot of progress in this country. Um, and, you know, you can go down the issues, whether it's, you know, sexual content uh, in 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 books, whether it's, um, uh, you know, just just a host of these issues. There's actually, you know, you look, there's just tons of common ground. And I, we'll put in the show notes. We wrote a report called Common Ground that has lots of this data. But like there really is. You just look like people, you know, people don't need convincing that there's a problem with race and racism. Uh in America and historically, like, but like you get this hardcore group on both sides, like one side saying nobody actually believes that and the other side, you know, saying it's it's not a thing, but those are the margins. Like most Americans are there and it's issue after issue. And so a little bit that may add to the heat because there's fundamentally so much less disagreement there than people would think when you get outside the advocates. And so they're vying for these different groups are vying for slices of sort of elite coalitions and elite attention. And it's kind of divorced from what's actually going on in terms of how people are, you know, how people are living their lives. One thing that we can return to in the future, I'd really love to pick your brain on this, given that we have this level of, I, I've been calling this the great disconnect. I, I, I saw this, you know, several years back, just that the overlap between what public education was offering and the bare minimum that parents would exist, would, would, would accept was becoming smaller and smaller such that there would be maybe no overlap whatsoever. And I think that's what we're, what we're you know, coming into and just many, yeah. many parents just leaving, right? Well, well, the pandemic, I think, did we can talk about this another time. The pandemic did like there's there, you know, there's a thing you know, call like, you know, path dependency. You talk about political science. So when things are things are on basically on a path, they tend to proceed on that path until they're disrupted. And the pandemic disrupted. There's a lot of path dependency. People are like, oh, it might be nice to have a different school or do something different. But like, this is how our life is structured. This is what we do. This is the school. And the pandemic opened up like a lot of possibilities for a lot of people, particularly people with means, there's a obvious class yeah. uh, overlay to this whole thing. And I think we're seeing the effects of that in people's like, you can be more dissatisfied now, you can actually act on that. Um, uh, and I don't think the public school establishment has come to terms with that. They're still telling themselves these happy stories. They're picking these fights on, on other stuff. And I don't think they are, are I don't think they've actually really come to terms with what a perilous uh, moment it is. And for people like ourselves who have pretty much anchored ourselves in our entire pro professional life around the support of public education, and there's some place beyond publicness that we just don't go, vouchers, I think is going to be something we're going to have to revisit because there, this is just happening now. And, uh, and if we want to say that we're interested in public education, but we have nothing to say about how vouchers and, and private, quote unquote, private education happens. We're just basically going to write ourselves out of the conversation for generations to come. This is the direction that things are going. And there are ways that these programs can be set up to be more or less public. You know, the thumb on the scale of the kids who need better education more um, than others. And we can either just wash our hands of it. And if we do, I think that will mean that the, these programs will evolve to be 
less supportive of kids who need it most, right? Yeah. If, if we involve ourselves, we, I think, can make sure that these things actually um, uh, become a positive thing. Um, but it, our voice is going to be needed uh, for, for that kind of positive thing to happen. Yeah, we need we need pragmatism, right? You remember when? Yeah, remember back in like 2000, Al Gore called himself a a, pra, a, a pragmatic idealist, and yeah. you know he got a load of crap because that guy could never catch a break. But it's actually <laughs> like it's a great formulation. Like you want to, you know, we should maintain our ideals and our idealism around this stuff, but you also need to be pragmatic. And you are totally right. Like, like where we are, we need to meet people where they are, and to the extent we don't, public education is going to lose a lot of its supporters, and the system still seems, you know just really fixed on trying to alienate people and annoy them with just a host of policies that complicate what people want, how they want to live their lives and, and, and what they expect. And I, I just think it's, 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 it's incredibly ill-timed uh, right now with everything, with everything going on. And we didn't even get to like learning loss. You've got this like enormous, you know, uh, you know, backdrop of just catastrophe for a lot of kids yeah. that people are also not sort of squarely looking at. For sure. Well, lots of stuff to keep talking about. Yeah. Well, we'll be back together in a couple of weeks for our mystery guests. And yeah, and there we can really get into our mystery guests are gonna like tee us up to really get into some of these questions around parental empowerment and 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 what's going on in some of these uh some of these different groups. So their their take on all this will be uh I think be uh I, I think they will bring interesting perspectives and it'll be fascinating. And so then we'll either take a hiatus or you know, I'll join you from halfway through the Camino for what? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to want to hear about that. We may need to just do a special one on that. Um, what an amazing experience. I'm so, I'm so happy that you all can do that in 25 years. That's great. That's a, that's a huge accomplishment. Well, we're excited to be doing it. Um, and uh, just delighted to have this chance to do this stuff with you, Andy. So, um, I look forward to continuing and, and look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I will too, Jed. I'll see you in uh, two weeks. It was great to see you. Okay. Take care. See ya.